Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 935. On today's program, we begin with David Lorelo welcoming Ryan Fitzgerald, a prospect in the Boston Red Sox organization. Fitzgerald shares the story of going from undrafted to indie league, now all the way to AAA, just one stop away from his lifelong goal of reaching the majors. The pair also talk about using camera technology to improve swing mechanics down to the smallest detail, the effects of intentionally hitting for power, and what it was like to play behind Chris Sale. Fitzgerald also talks about how he sticks out a bit in the clubhouse with his statistical approach to the game. And you spend a lot of time, of course, in clubhouses. How many of your teammates look at stats the same way you do? None of them. Uh, they think I'm crazy. <laughs> so I've tried to. I've tried to have conversations with them, and and a few of them, few of them get it. A few of them understand, and you know they'll they'll come around eventually. But uh, I know. I mean, if you want to play the game it, the way the front offices are looking at it, I think it's it's the best way to go is is looking at WRC plus instead of batting average. After that, Ben Clemens and Eric Longenhagen have an extended chat about their recent travels and what is going on in the game. Eric has returned from the Area Code games in San Diego, and he goes into what the event was like and how it comes together, especially during a weird time like this, and how the wonderful world of shared amateur data works and came to be. Meanwhile, Ben wants to chat about some of these teams that are realistically out of the playoff hunt but still have things to figure out. What are the Guardians going to do with their roster and potential 40-man crunches? Can Abraham Toro pull off playing second base for the Mariners? And what kind of things can the Cardinals do next year? And how about the team with Shohei Otani and Mike Trout? Now, the Angels, I think, are doing exactly what they should do, which is they brought Reed Detmers up. They're giving Adele and Brandon Marsh chances to just keep playing at the Major League level. They're trying to make every Otani start an event, and they should be because it's really fun. I think they're handling this kind of lost season quite well. But before we get to these baseball conversations, I must point you in the direction of the Fangraphs.com shop. And more specifically, have you considered an ad-free membership? It is not only the absolute best way to browse the website, blazingly fast, but is the absolute best way to support the website and make sure we keep doing all the cool baseball things we do. Thank you so much for your support. We couldn't do it without you. Enjoy the show. Hey, baseball fans, this is David Lorela. My guest is Ryan Fitzgerald, infielder in the Boston Red Sox organization. Ryan was in AA Portland when he agreed to come on to this podcast a few weeks ago, but he has since been promoted to AAA Worcester. So, Ryan, I guess we should start by congratulating you on reaching the doorstep of the big leagues. I think that's pretty good for a guy who went undrafted five years ago. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. And uh, thanks for having me on the podcast as well. Yeah, it's uh, it's been quite the journey for sure, making it all the way here. I think if I'm not mistaken, uh, when I make my big league debut, I'll be the first guy to go undrafted to independent ball to the big leagues. Wow, that that is crazy. Yeah, yeah you were a senior sign out of Creighton University, a senior sign in that actually you, as you mentioned, you played indie ball first. I think that was for, what was it, the Gary South Shore Railcats, I think? Yes, that's correct. Yeah, how does that process work? Is this something like where a Red Sox scout approached you at a game in indie ball and said, hey, would you like to sign? That's how it usually works for most guys, but for me it was a little different. So I played there in 2017, and going into the off season of 2017, I went to a couple tryouts for. I went to the Diamondbacks, the Braves, and and the Red Sox invited me to one as well down in Fort Myers. It's kind of funny. I went to the Diamondbacks one at the end of February, 
And then the next day, I actually flew straight to Fort Myers. So I was down in Arizona at the Diamondback Spring Training Facility, did a tryout there, and then hopped the plane, flew to Florida, did a tryout for the Red Sox the, day, the next day. And then about two months had passed by, uh, and then the indie ball season was about to start. I, uh, I headed to the, to the stadium for spring training. We have like a two-week spring training in, in indie ball, and uh, after the first day, that was when the Red Sox called. So I, I didn't have to go back for my second year of indie ball. And what does a tryout look like? When you went to the uh, Arizona complex into Fort Myers, what exactly did they have you do? So in the Arizona one, we, we just did like regular in and out type stuff, ground balls, did BP, and then we just did live at bats off of pitchers. And then we did the same exact thing with the Red Sox, did more live at bats, uh, took BP and all that. So pretty standard, not, nothing crazy, just kind of want to see what you can do. And as far as what guys can do, the the Red Sox scouts who saw you in indie ball saw a guy who's a pretty good defensive infielder, but also a guy who had a 695 OPS that year. You now have, uh, see, I wrote down the number here somewhere. We're speaking on Tuesday, an 887 OPS between AA and AAA. That is a 200-point jump at a much higher level. That doesn't happen by accident. Yeah, definitely not. Yeah, so my when I first got an indie ball, kind of had the mentality of I got nothing to lose because you really do have nothing to lose when you're an indie ball. So I was I was really trying to find uh, how to hit for power, and I was trying to figure it out on my own. And it, all I really did was more of a just intent intent based uh, change where uh, I just tried to hit for more power. I never really did that in college, so I figured. Uh, why not try it in, in indie ball? And it, it was, you know, it was all right. Like you mentioned, you know, the six whatever OPS. And But I didn't really learn what I was doing until after that year. I had met uh, a couple guys, uh, Devin DeYoung being one of them. He's with the White Sox now. And Ryan Johansson, another, another guy who's also with the White Sox, both coaches. And uh, they really kind of put me on this path to learning my body and understanding how to keep the consistency instead of just going out there and and blindly trying to hit for power, more so understanding how to do it. And both of them have really helped me tremendously in being able to be consistent with it now. Right. So a big part of that is, of course, biomechanics. How exactly did you go about producing more power? Yeah, so both Ryan and, and Devin kind of got me into uh, like a K-Vest and, and 40 motion, which are sensors that you can put on your body. And it kind of gives you, you hook it up to either an iPad or a computer and you can see how your body's moving and how fast it's moving each section of the swing. We use force plates and then we also use like machines and stuff to hit off of instead of just doing regular flips and stuff like that. So I learned a lot about kind of the sequencing of my swing I and mean, what, what parts of my body were moving first and and. If they were moving fast enough, we, we knew what the, the pro averages were. We found that, you know, for instance, my pelvis was, was moving at 200 degrees lower than the pro average. I think I was my pelvis was moving at like 400 degrees per second. I think the pro average is somewhere around like 600 degrees per second. And so we just started toying around with different different moves I could make um, and, then, and then finding uh, deficiencies in my, my body where... Uh, we could improve stability or speed, and those those two really go hand in hand. So finding all those deficiencies and creating a, a prep routine before I hit to try to activate the muscles that I need to activate in order to hit and in order to, I need, I mean, I need to feel those muscles in order to have that stability is really huge for me. You are a left-handed hitter, of course. 
taking a look at your Portland numbers, I think it was maybe seven games ago that you were pr promoted to Worcester. You had a 280 batting average in Portland, and your WRC Plus was 139. I think I can take an educated guess as to which of those numbers are more important to you. <laughs> yeah, WRC Plus is definitely more important to me, mainly because, I mean, not that batting average is a horrible stat to look at, but it values every hit the same. So, you know, you hit a home run, you get the same amount of points as if you hit a home run or, or a single. So WRC Plus kind of takes into that weighted factor for hitting for extra base hits, um, as well as walks and, and hit by pitches. And you spend a lot of time, of course, in clubhouses. How many of your teammates look at stats the same way you do? None of them. Uh, they think I'm crazy. <laughs> so I've tried to I've tried to have conversations with them, and and a few of them few of them get it. A few of them understand, and you know they'll they'll come around eventually. But uh, I know I mean if you want to play the game it, the way the front offices are looking at it, I think it's it's the best way to go is is looking at WRC plus instead of batting average. No, for sure. What are your conversations like, Ryan, with uh, your hitting coaches and coordinators? Yeah, I mean, I got to kind of pick my spots. Some of them, you know, I, well, all of them have, have phenomenal information. I've yet to run into a coach here that doesn't have something that I can learn from them, which which has been incredible. But, uh, you know, some of them have played, you know, 30 years ago. And uh, <laughs> you got to kind of uh, help them along a little bit and put it more in layman's terms. But uh, a lot of them understand it. So it's, it's kind of cool to see that. But, yeah, it's uh, sometimes it's a little little like pulling teeth. It can be certainly, although you know you very well know how much the game game has has changed. I know that a lot of people listening to this podcast, you know, you you are speaking their language. I know that they will. A lot of people will take a quick look at your stats and see that your 11 home runs this year, you know, is a career high with with two months to go. So I think that circles back into the changes that you have made, you know, at the plate. Yeah, definitely. Actually, it's kind of fun. We have a we have a suspended game that I played in in Portland that we haven't finished yet, and I hit a home run in that game. So it's actually at 12, but that won't show up until September when they finish that suspended game. Oh, wow. And you will not have to go back to Portland for that to happen. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, super. Another number, Ryan, you, know, you are a shortstop, uh, and you were actually the Red Sox minor league defensive player of the year two years ago, the last year before the, the pandemic. You have five errors this year. Are errors a meaningful stat or a meaningless stat? To me, they're meaningless. I look at defensive runs saved, and in 2019, I know that I was above average for shortstops for defensive runs saved. I think So I played short for like, I think, 112 games, I think, in 2019, and then played third and second the, other, the rest of the games. But uh, our third baseman, he had an unbelievable defensive run save. He ended up retiring after that year. But uh, yeah, on the, on the left side of the infield between me and him, our, our DRS was pretty high. Yeah, I will push back a little bit on the meaningless. I agree wholeheartedly that stats like DRS are far more telling than errors, but errors do show some sure-handedness. You know, there are players who get to a lot of balls who have a habit of throwing them into the dugout. Yeah, no, definitely, for sure. I think there's definitely some context that goes along with it. I mean, I can think of, you know, two errors that they gave me this year. You know, one of them on a one hopper that went off my chest. I didn't think it was an error. My coaches didn't think it was an error. They tried to talk to the scorekeeper and he said otherwise, which I was like, whatever, I don't really care about errors. And then the other one was a relay home, threw it to the catcher, right to his chest, popped out of his glove. They gave me the error instead of the catcher. So, I mean, those are two errors that you could subtract, I think, from, from my total, but like I said, I don't, I don't, I don't really get bothered by errors much. 
No, the the score, you know, official score, of course, does play a role in errors. I think that's that's pretty fair to say that you know errors are not not hard and fast. Who Ryan is the best defensive player that you have played with this year? Oh, best defensive player. That's that's a good question. Um, hmm. this year I would probably have to say I played with him for one game, Marwin Gonzalez. So Sale was pitching, and he, and I was we were shifted up the middle on a lefty, and Corey Dickerson was hitting for the Buffalo Bison, and he hit like a two hopper, like a one and a half hopper to my backhand. So I'm running, I get it, and I threw it. I'm like, dang it! And as soon as I threw it, I knew it was an in between hop. I'm like, crap! Like, and you just know as soon as you let go, and he picked that thing like it was nothing. I was like, what? Like usually you see it in, like the first baseman do this like crazy like glove through the ball like all the way in the air and he picked it like it was absolutely nothing and then just popped it around i was like wow that that was incredible so i'm gonna have to say him based on one game one game one play (laughs) (laughs) told me everything i needed to know (laughs) yeah and marwin of course uh while he's struggling with the bat has been valuable to the red sox this year with his ability to play uh numerous defensive positions pretty well you've actually played uh second third and center field this year so it looks like you may have a future as a big league utility player yeah it's uh anywhere i I tell them wherever i can get in the lineup if they want me to catch i'll catch uh whatever they need so and i I was talking to my manager last week and he wants to try to get me out in uh, one of the corner outfield positions so you might see me out there soon too yeah do you think we'll see you behind the plate or on the mound (laughs) <laughs> I don't know about the mound, but uh, who knows? I might be behind the plate someday. You never know. Hey, Brock Holt threw uh, Anifa's pitch at, I think, 32 miles an hour in a I big saw league that. game. Yeah, I saw yeah. that. There's there's hope. There's hope. <laughs> no, that was one of the coolest things I've seen. <laughs> yeah, first strike, too, nonetheless. For sure. Yeah, uh, I mean, nobody cares about my uh, high school baseball career, but I did throw an EFIS at least 10 or 12 times my, <laughs> my one year, just trying to have a... baseball is fun, right? Yeah, it's an yeah. effective pitch if you can throw it for a strike, for sure. Yeah, if, if the umpire is willing to call it for a strike, I, I learned at the high school level. Definitely. Yeah, uh, somebody who throws a little bit harder than 32, you just mentioned having Chris Sale on the mound. I assume that that was quite the experience. Yeah, no, it was cool. I got to play behind him twice in Portland, and then I got to play behind him again here in in Worcester. But yeah, it's it's cool playing. It's relaxing, really. It's <laughs> you don't get a ton of action, but uh, it's it's fun to watch for sure. Yeah, just how sharp was he? He was solid. I mean, his first start in Portland was was incredible. Actually, a couple weeks before he started for us, he came down to Portland to um, throw some bullpens, and I got to stand in on one of them. And and I, obviously, I wasn't swinging; I was just standing. But he got me to buckle on one of them. <laughs> it looked like it was coming right at my face, and then it just dropped in. So yeah, his his slider is is incredible, and even his fastball, the angle that it comes from is is something else. Right. Yeah. This podcast is scheduled to air on Friday, and Sale will be making his first Red Sox start his first big league start in two years on on saturday which is very much looked forward to here with fun in mind ryan when you're playing the infield behind a guy like chris sale you're obviously locked into the game but do you allow yourself a few seconds to think hey this is cool you know i'm on the same field with uh, chris sale on the mound yeah, I mean, it, it, you kind of, his first pitch, you know, he throws, everyone gives him a standing O, and then for the first inning, everyone's clapping for him every strike that he throws. So, yeah, you ca- I mean, you definitely notice it and, and feel the energy when he's throwing. But, uh, yeah, kind of by, by the third time around, it was kind of like, okay, I've been here, done that. But, yeah, it's, I mean, it's it's fun playing behind him, and he's he's a phenomenal guy. Yeah, who are, Ryan, some of the uh, the best pitchers that you have faced this season? Oh, 
Let's see. I'd have to say, so there's this guy from New Hampshire. He may be in AAA now. I'm not sure, but his name was Rodning, lefty. The angle he throws at is very similar to, to Sale. It's just to a lefty. It comes out of the popcorn stand. You can't even really see it until it's on you. So you kind of almost got to like guess hit to make sure to make sure you get some barrel on it but yeah he was he's definitely probably the toughest i've faced the other one was probably Johan ibar from the hartford yard goats lefty reliever he used to be with us uh the last few years and uh he got rule five to think or traded over to uh the rockies and then i actually just recently faced john axford did not expect to see 98 with spin at the top of the zone from him so that was uh that was a tough ab as well yeah, Axford is, is no longer a, a young pup. Right. He might be old enough to be my dad. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, not quite that old. You are 27, though, and uh, Rule 5 eligible this winter. I don't know if, if you own a crystal ball, but if you look in it, you know what do you see in, in your future? <laughs> the only thing I've ever seen in my crystal ball is me playing in the big leagues. Um, I mean, I've, I've seen it since I was a kid. Uh, I've seen it, you know, the day I wasn't drafted, I still knew I would, I would make it here, but yeah, it's the way, however I get there has been completely unpredictable. <laughs> I have no idea what's, what's going to happen. I, I, no one really says much to me. I don't have an agent, so I don't really know, uh, what the whole scene is like out there. I don't really have a pulse on that. So I'm just trying to control what I can control and, and uh, see what happens. No, for sure. Do you ever wonder, Ryan, if you would be where you are now had you not become somewhat of a, you know, a hitting nerd a few years ago? Yeah, I don't think I would have lasted at all. I, I've said it many times that uh, I don't think I would be here if I didn't go play indie ball for a year and meet the people I met. You know, had I had I not met Devin DeYoung and Ryan Johansson, I I don't think I would be here. You know, or, or maybe I'd just be a career low-level minor league player that just kind of fills in wherever the organization needs me just because I could play defense. But uh, yeah, I, I don't think I would get as many opportunities as I have if I didn't figure it out at the plate. And uh, we are running out of time, but we should circle back, Ryan, on what we started with at the outset about you getting promoted to Worcester. I believe it was on the 29th of July. I assume that, you know, moving from Portland to Pawtucket, you had to, to get a new place to live, of course. Yeah. You know, how, what is that setup like in the upper levels of the minor leagues? Yeah, so uh, they just they got a team hotel for us. Pretty much everyone stays here unless unless they got families. And even some guys that have families are staying in the hotel, you know, with their wife and kids. But yeah, it's uh, you know paying hundred bucks a night to stay here, and the Red Sox helps out a little bit and give us a, a three hundred dollar stipend each month to try to help with those costs. But uh, that's only covering three nights of the week. So I, I'm digging in digging in my uh, my own pocket. And I mean, I'm I'm making the minor league minimum at you know twenty five hundred a month. You know, 20, I guess 2,800 if you want to include the the stipend for the living. So, yeah, it's it's tough trying to figure out you know nutrition and making sure that I have everything I need to perform on the field as well as uh, pay for a hotel. And this harkens back to Fangrass Audio a few weeks ago when we had Jonathan Perrin on talking a lot about how difficult you know the minor league life is. So, like a lot of players, your life will change markedly. I was going to say if, when you make it to the big leagues, you no longer will be, you know, quote unquote, scraping by. So that, that is the dream. Yeah, that is the dream. And it's, it's been nice having Chris Sale down here buying some spreads for us, getting, <laughs> getting some good food. And, uh, you know, we all thanked him for that because we're, we're super appreciative for that. Yeah. And perhaps someday uh, Ryan Fitzgerald can be buying spreads for, uh, for minor leaguers <laughs> down the road. Definitely. That is the goal for sure. 
Yeah, Ryan, thank you very much for coming on to Fangrass Audio. You know, good luck with the remainder of your year with AAA Worcester. And everybody, thanks for listening to Fangrass Audio. Hello again, Fangraphs Audio listeners. This is lead prospect analyst Eric Longenhagen coming to you from my kitchen table in Tempe, Arizona, joined by Ben Clemens. Ben, what's going on? Not much. I wish I could say I'm joining you from my kitchen table, but I'm just uh, at a desk in my wonderful home in San Francisco. My, like the island in my kitchen area, which has like two high top chairs, is a nice like... If I want to stand up during the day rather than like be sitting in an office chair all day, then the height of this island is good for that. That's like a build your own standing desk. Yeah. I remember first hearing about standing desks when someone was like describing Donald Rumsfeld having one as a way of like discussing what kind of a hard ass he was. And now it's just like, oh, he just he just didn't want to sit all day. Like, I get it. <laughs> My introduction to standing desks was that someone I worked with asked for one from our large company. They said no. So he just took maybe 20 stacks of printer paper and just stacked his monitors up high enough that he could stand and then still see them. And just yep. like basically wasted all kinds of random supplies, stacking everything up high enough in a regular desk. And I'm sure putting a lot of stress on the desk that he could do it anyway. Not quite as nice as a real standing desk or even an island. Speaking of standings, uh, one thing that you wanted to talk about on the pod this week is these teams sort of in competitive limbo where they're not really in the playoff hunt, but also not like one of the bottom basement dwellers who are in a clear rebuild situation, who they're thinking about stuff like the draft and like what we had to watch for the next couple of weeks as those these teams like in the in the middle play things out. Uh, and I was going to talk about area codes, which I got back from yesterday, four days in San Diego, the University of San Diego. I don't know. When you, what do you know about area codes? I mean, I could tell you roughly what it is, that it's a high school showcase where the games matter, but the kind of pregame nonsense they do matters too. I think it's a tournament. I don't know if that part's right. It's an eight-team round robin play showcase event for next year's high school graduates so 2022 draft guys and it's broken up regionally the teams are put together by scouts and there's like there are eight teams northeast southeast northern california southern california texas southeast northwest etc etc and it's you know it's a group of mix of like high-end draft prospects for next year and guys who are not really prospects but are gonna go play college baseball somewhere sometimes like fillers sometime. kind of yeah and it's a it's like a five-day thing where the first couple of days there are four teams take BP in the morning and then in the afternoon you have a couple of games. And then once everyone's taken BP, like on day three, you just have games stacked. So like there were two days of five games, just one right after another, seven innings apiece. And so you're in there watching, you know, 35 innings of baseball in a day. In a typical year, it takes place at Long Beach State, but because that's a state school and California still has serious COVID restrictions, they moved it this year to the University of San Diego, which is a private institution where you can just kind of do whatever you want, I guess. So <laughs> different location this year. And yeah, I just got back from that. So I saw a bunch of the 2022 kids. And as always, it was an interesting event. The talent in next year's high school group, to me, looks about average and... This is not the first high school showcase event of the summer. There's been East Coast Pro and a PDP thing. There was a Team USA event in 
Colorado right before All-Star Weekend, which I was in for. And it's like an average high school group, probably with a name or two that even folks just listening to this who don't necessarily care about the prospect stuff very much have heard. Like Elijah Green, Termar Johnson is probably the name that that group of people is going to know and become intimately familiar with next. This is the guy who I think is probably just better than Elijah Green, actually. Uh, what do you know about Elijah Green? Was it a name that you heard during the course of the last year? I have. But basically because I know he's the best high school prospect for 2022. It came out really when he's one of these guys who goes to the, like these athletics institutions in Florida, IMG Academy. IMG yeah. And so, yeah, like early this year, it was widely discussed that like this guy's tools are ridiculous. And if he were in the 2021 draft, he would just go first. Then he proceeded to strike out 35% of the time during the varsity season. So I don't necessarily think that that's correct. Um, <laughs> but he is really tooled out. Like it might be seven raw right now. He's a seven runner. He can stay in center field. I've gotten like some four, one, five. Home to first time is from him. He's a right-handed hitter and he can throw. But yeah, the strikeout piece is like a big deal. It is a lot like what the broad strokes Joe Adele profile was a couple years ago where it's like, wow, look at this guy. He has gigantic power and speed for a 17-year-old. And wow, he's also striking out a lot. And he's strictly better than a lot of the high school outfielders who have gone towards like the back of the top 10 the last couple of years. Guys like Zach Veen and Robert Hassel and Hassel's hit tool is more stable. Benny Montgomery, like these are guys who have gone close to pick 10 the last couple of years. And Elijah Green blows these dudes out of the water in terms of present physical ability. And so I do think that he's going to get paid and go somewhere slightly above that. But would I take him first if I were like the D-backs or whoever's going to pick first? Like, meh. I'd have to really think about that. Whereas the Tamar Johnson kid is, he's only 5'8", but he's so explosive and has almost as much power as Green, is left-handed. 5'8", huh? He's only 5'8", but when you see him, you're you're not going to look at the kid and go, oh, he's little. He's short, but he's not small, if that makes sense. It does. Hey, so I have a question for you. You said yeah. that this is mostly an average class, but yeah. how much of that... How easy is it to tell that? Because you can't see the past classes here at the same time. And it feels like, I mean, there's obviously some actual raw quantitative stuff that you can do to measure. You can measure sprint speeds and, you know, right. like, I don't know, you can look at their BPs and stuff. And those those are pretty stable year over year. But it feels like a lot of the, the things that would make me be able to tell the difference between two prospects, because, yeah, like high school kids are, if you're going to be a first round draft pick as a high school kid, you're probably really tooled out, like right? Like, there aren't any guys who are going in the first round for high school. And it's like, well, he doesn't look like much, but he can play. That, that's right. more college types. How do you tell what's an average class, what's better, what's worse? Some of it is just from building your own sort of mental catalog over the course of 14 years now. But it's just when you're weighing apples to apples like I did with Green and the other high school kids who I just mentioned. Like right. It is just like, oh, a year ago, I watched this guy do the same round of drills at this exact same event and he looked like this. Whereas Elijah Green looks like that and Zach Veen went here. And so just heuristically, Elijah Green should go about here. So it is a lot of the... uh, To group guys like that, to get a feel for where they belong. It is a lot of the kind of skills-based things rather than the game that matters there. Right. Yeah. Well, for sure, there's, you know, you're taking BP and you're doing infield outfield a couple times during the course of the week, but it really is like... 
when you have this cross-section of talent from across the country, you're just seeing what it looks like when any of these guys hits against 87 and above consistently. Like, I'm going to watch 25 at-bats this week of this guy seeing 87 to 91 with, like, fringy breaking stuff, basically. And so you do get a good feel for, like, okay, if we drop this kid into rookie ball and this is the type of pitching that he saw most of the time, how would he do? And what would he look like? And there's other contextual stuff, too. Like, these guys have been going at it now, traveling all summer to different parts of the country, a lot of the ones, especially the elite ones, Mm -hmm. for, like, the last couple months. and so. Some of them are gassed, and I was talking to some scouts this week who mentioned that everyone looks a little down right now in terms of skills just because it's been a a grind on the kids, and they're probably at least a little bit tired. It's a very interesting world we live in where the high school baseball showcase circuit is a grind on the kids. Yeah, it is, and I agree with you that it's not necessarily a a great thing. But yeah, it's we've talked about this before, like the types of people and families who can actually afford to do this is kind of limiting the talent that we cultivate in the game. And it is just a lot to put kids and families through, especially after the last year and a half we've all had. Yeah. Like, all right, stuff is quote unquote open. Go travel every two weeks for your kid's last summer of his childhood, basically, and feel the pressure of, you know, pro baseball on you. And not only that, but it's not like traveling is pleasant right now. No. I flew last week. I went to St. Louis to see some family and airports are just not fun. Like I needed to cough to clear my throat for about three hours because I was like, oh, if I cough, I'm just going to get stared at. I really don't want to do that. And just everything about the whole experience of traveling is a lot worse when you're wearing a mask and wheeling your head around at everyone wondering if they're just going to cough all over you, basically. It's like, uh, you know, judges, the sentences that they levy are heavily influenced by like the proximity that they come to their decision with when they last ate. Like judges who have just finished lunch are much more lenient than ones who haven't eaten for a while, basically. is. You like, know, I read that study. Is that real? I think that's real, dude. <laughs> I, mean, I should, read like a, like a pop doing that dubious podcast thing right now, yeah, but yeah. Exactly. It seems like a really bad deal for, I mean, it makes sense somewhat. I'm definitely crabby when I haven't eaten for a while, but... But if we all have, like, none of us like wearing it. So yeah. when you're just, you know, out there and there are you're walking past thousands of people and we all have our masks on and are dealing with the stuff that we already don't like about air travel, which is many things. Yeah, you know, it just like, makes we're all you... just going to be like, this. Exactly. It just puts you in a worse head state. But yeah, it was, you know, it's a, it's a great event. It's one of my favorite events to do every year. It was definitely weird being at University of San Diego this year. It's not the best. It's an awesome campus and I love San Diego as a city, but when you're at the ballpark for 12 hours a day, it doesn't matter what city you're in. Right. And so it was just, you know, different to learn a new setup for area codes when I'd been doing it the same way since I started going in 2014 or 15 or whenever. So like where I eat and how I park and all that stuff became a, like a, a refined process, walking to the ballpark every day, uh, and it was just different this week. Are they all wired up, USD? They have TrackMan and everything? They did have a unit in for this event. When the Padres did alternate site there last year, they did not have a unit installed, which is why the Padres could not participate in the data sharing because they just where they were training didn't have a unit installed and even if they wanted to participate they could not so 
Sometime between then and now, a unit was installed. They did have TrackMan up for the game, although it wasn't shared in real time with the scouting department the way it is in a typical year at Long Beach, where in some some years they just put up big TV screens right behind home plate, like askew slightly down the first and third base sides that just have velo, spin rate, axis, like exit velocity if the ball was put in play, just a big, like the, the laptop readout screen just being fed to uh, to a big TV monitor. And when they would do that, that was that was awesome because then, you know, all the scouts feel free to just put their radar guns down and focus on. Right. It's just easier to you just have a couple more seconds to take notes when you're not handling a radar gun. And do teams get all that data like even this year? Yeah, yeah. There's there's mandatory sh- uh, data sharing now for amateur stuff it became like a written policy within the last year and a half because well, teams like, are buying colleges track mans, right? Correct. Yeah. They, initially, it was like the Astros installed a unit for Vanderbilt and had exclusive access to their data. And then Division One that was legislated out so that all of the D1 stuff had to be shared. And then that dynamic began to play out at the junior college level where like the Braves bought Central Arizona a TrackMan unit for in exchange for exclusive access to the data that it was generating. And that started to happen at the handful of junior colleges where they had like the infrastructure to put a unit in and where teams thought, hey, there's enough talent that comes through here that we want a unit here. And anyway, yeah, there was like an arms race going on and MLB was like, nah, you're going to share all this stuff. So we defer the cost to all 30 teams rather than have you guys some, you know, some of the owners chasing this in a serious way and others not like they didn't want to do that. So, but yeah, I, I assume all of the data that was collected this week will, you know, it has to be shared with all 30 teams. And I hope that, I hope I can get my hands on it at some point because that's, you know, just one of those things that makes it a little bit easier to go back through and be like, oh, this kid who I didn't really like can really spin it. Or, oh, his fastball has carry that I didn't see visually. So I should follow this kid next spring or whatever. But yeah, it's, uh, I'm going to have a, some stuff written or uh, recorded about the the codes on a more specific like prospecty level at some point this week. But I think that's the broad strokes of it. It was a good event as always. I really wish that they would coordinate with the Perfect Game people because there's another event in San Diego on the 22nd. <laughs> go back. So I have to go back. And that one's a little nicer because there's more time for me to like hang out and enjoy San Diego in a leisurely way which is just presents a nice break from the heat in Arizona. Yeah. But you know, it was also not good for the talent because a lot of the really high-end kids who live on the East Coast thought to themselves, well, am I really going to go to San Diego for area codes and then come back home for a week and a half and then go back to San Diego for PG All-American? No, I'm just going to go to the latter one, which is like broadcast on MLB Network and stuff. And so it diluted some of the talent at area codes. And it would just be better for everyone if they collaborated a little bit so that one of the events ramped right into the other. So they're rivals though, right? So I'm not exactly sure how the area code games make money because <laughs> the because the teams are selected by scouts. I'm not sure how much of it is like paid for the kids it is maybe more of a break even event than something that makes a ton of money it takes a lot of work for them to put it on so i have heard that from people that like part of the reason that there's no coordination between the two is that there's not necessarily like great chemistry there but it would just be better for the industry we'd all appreciate it if that stuff got put 
aside and it would just be better for area code games ultimately to coordinate so that the kids coming out for the PG All American event just go, you know what? Let's just we'll go to area codes beforehand and, you know, do that for three days and then go down to San Diego for the the pet right. code game. Then I'll just be seen for a week and I'll crush kids who are throwing eighty six and look great. You know, like that is the way to go. So, all right, well, let's let's move on to your topic. I'm interested to talk about this. When you said the premise before we hopped on to record, it took me a second to decide, like, which of the teams fit the bill. So do you want to describe it? Yeah, the, the premise for this is basically teams who are out of the playoff hunt, but still around 500, to where they're not completely just blowing it up and not even trying at all, but they're almost definitely not going to make the playoffs this year. And so these teams all look to be competitive next year. And I'm curious what they're going to kind of target with the rest of the year. So the teams that fit the bill for me on that are uh, the Guardians, the Mariners and the Angels, and then the Cardinals. I think the Reds are a little bit too good to fit into this. I guess you could honestly throw the Tigers in there if you wanted to, although I'm, I'm a little skeptical that they'll be competing next year. Yeah, I think the Tigers are easy. It's just like continue to give these young guys reps. What do we have in these recent prospect arms, really? Let's try to get Tariq Skubal to work a little more efficiently, et cetera, et cetera. I think that's, that group is, is pretty obvious. I think that Cleveland is the one that is very complex, that their catching situation for next year is interesting. Austin Hedges is really good at some stuff and not at hitting. Roberto Perez has an option that they... I don't think you're going to pick up because Brian Lavastida, who's like a junior college catching prospect from a couple drafts ago, he's 40 man or rule five eligible this December. And he's hitting uh, like well over 300 this year. He's got an OBP well over 400. He's slugging, but not hitting home runs. He's got like 15 bags. And this is a guy who Converted to catching fairly late, and now he's blown up offensively this year. Like, he seems like a lock 40-man ad, so... Well, would you rather have Hedges or Perez? I think I'd rather just just non-tender Hedges. I think that when I did the 40-man crunch piece, that was the question I asked myself, too, because Hedges is an ARB4 guy, but Perez has a $7 million club option. So it'd save like two and a half or three million bucks, probably. Figure Hedges will get a small raise just because, you know, you never don't get a raise in ARB. Yeah, I I think I'd rather have hedges just because for Cleveland, I feel like that three and a half million means an extra player of some kind. Yeah. Well, as I look at their roster, are they actually going to try to compete next year? I think missing Shane Bieber this year was a huge, huge deal. That they, the way they turn out pitching means that they will have legit contender big league starting pitcher depth between Bieber and Plesak. And the group of young guys like Morgan and McKenzie continuing to develop. I mean, Karen Chack and Klasse in the bullpen. Like, I, I do think that they have a contending pitching staff for sure. How many hitters are there do you like? Like one and a half? Well, this is the other problem is that it's like Jose Ramirez is a lock. Yeah, he's one and a half of my one and a half. <laughs> <laughs> you can start poking holes in the rest of it though, right? Like, I like Fran Miel. Like, I like him. And right. He's a piece. I think that's it. Nailer, I think, is a piece as well, but I do think that the outfielders that they have kind of tried to platoon have not really worked out at all. I think that you can expect the group of middle infielders that they have, Ahmed Rosario, Owen Miller, Andres Jimenez, Gabriel Arias, guys who they got basically in in some of the trades that they made during the offseason, 
like some of them will be good enough to to be perfectly suitable plug and play. Like I guess I like Rosario. Okay, he's actually he's pretty been good pretty good. Year. Yeah, but yeah. I just I guess what they need to do with the rest of this year is figure out which of these guys they're going to use next year because they have there is really no reason not to give a bunch of these random guys reps and see who they actually want to play. Yeah, because you know. Take your choice between Miles Straw and Harold Ramirez and Mercado and Bradley Zimmer. You can't put all these guys on the team. And if you have a 40-man crunch, like none of them are that good. But I, I guess what they should be doing with the rest of the year is figuring out which of these players they want to keep. I think that, yeah, you mentioned the 40-man crunch. And it's true. Like You could make an argument here that the bottom of the Cleveland Big League roster has a lot of guys who are like hanging on by a thread in terms of do we keep them or is it time to move on from Zimmer and Mercado and Daniel Johnson? Like I said, these platoon type outfielders who just haven't really done anything. And then on the way you have, I mentioned Lavastida, Richie Palacios is hitting. He doesn't really have a position. Cody Morris, Robert Broom, Brian Rocchio is a top 100 prospect. Tyler Freeman's a top 100 prospect. All these guys are December of 2021 roster ads. And so do you say, all right, let's keep these guys and move on from that group of outfielders in their mid to late 20s who I just mentioned? Or do we consolidate these prospects into like big league pieces right now, basically? So I think that, I don't know what the market's going to be like. Maybe that's the way you answer that question is, okay, can we move the group of prospects I just mentioned for like a controllable young outfielder that we think can contribute to the big league team in, in a significant way next year. All right. Because those, those are just, you know, falling off trees. Right. That's the thing is like, who would really want to part with somebody like that? I mean, there's Brian Reynolds, but that's kind of it. Right. Yeah. You're looking at, all right, who are teams whose rebuilds are going to take quite a while who have players who are going to become expensive or hit free agency during the course of that long rebuild. So that's like, you know, Baltimore needs to start to show some results soon, I think, but maybe they're still in that bucket. I mean, Baltimore is in that bucket, but oh yeah, I mean, I <laughs> like that's kind of it, right? It's not like there's a lot of, like you could trade for Anthony Santander and then great. And you have another player that you don't know what to do with. Right. And then, then the, but the optics of that for Cleveland would be, Hey, we just traded a bunch of prospects for a guy who we let go in the rule five at one point, you know? Oh, yeah. I'm not sure that trading for Mountcastle would be that much better. Right. He's he's a tenuous approach guy who has no defensive yeah. value. So Okay. So that's, that's what they're going to do is try to figure out who they're going to keep and who they're going to get rid of. Yeah. I guess for the Mariners, if I were them, I would just try to figure out if Abraham Toro can play second base. It's interesting. He's always been a bizarre prospect he's performed on paper from a visual standpoint he does have like power arm strength when he really steps into a throw but he can't make all the throws like middle infield defense seems like it's hard to see him being able to do that but I do think yeah like why not give that a shot for the rest of the year even situationally they tried shed long sheds basically the same type of defender where you're like let's just try to hide this guy today yeah. I mean, I think there's really nothing wrong with putting him at third if Seeger actually leaves. That's a little less clear, but it would definitely be nice for the team if they could play him at second, you know, legitimately. I don't think the early results are so great from both watching him play and looking at what the metrics say. Like, outs above average thinks he's not good, but I think finding that out, and it doesn't matter if he boots some balls or doesn't get to some, just if they can find out, that's worthwhile use of this, the rest of their season. And they've had injury stuff that's made it tough, like, you know, with Kyle Lewis and Evan White and Shed Long's been hurt a lot. James Paxton, Tommy John. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think they've honestly had an admirable season. 
they've really been better than I expected. And I don't hate the Graveman trade as much as I thought it was just bad, like kind of sequencing. They actually, I think, won pretty decently on, you know, getting Castillo out of that and not giving up that much to get him. I thought the network of trades was pretty good and sets them up to be good next year. Just it, it certainly didn't feel good to trade your closer to a team you are currently playing in your division. I think they need to be in depth accumulation mode. When you look at the group of guys that they have with Kelnick and Julio and Cal Raleigh and Noel V. Marte is coming pretty fast and the college pitching that they've drafted that has developed pretty quickly with Gilbert and George Kirby, like a lot of these guys are on the way. But you've seen San Diego and, you know, the Yankees struggle when injuries take a toll on your ability to sustain an apex level of performance in a competitive division, which is what you need to make the playoffs in some of these divisions. And maybe the AL West is not that, but I think, you know, you just need to have better options than what the Mariners have had to bring up Casey Sadler type dudes. And, you know, when you, when you're dealing with the injuries that we just mentioned, you just need better alternatives than what the Mariners are poised to have next year to be able to sustain that type of thing. Yeah, this whole playing Luis Torrens at DH thing is that's not really good. Yeah, I don't know. Like, you're right. They have interesting pieces, but I don't know why, like, Dylan Moore. Dylan Moore is just playing somewhere different every day, which I think is the right way to use him. Ty France should be your everyday. De- but again, like, Evan White's hurt. There are just reasons that that's yeah. what they have to do. But again, it's suboptimal. I'll tell you this. I like their roster more than I like Cleveland's by a decent amount. Just like Beaver's great. And, but there are just so few hitters that I even think could be decent one day on their roster. And then the Mariners roster has several guys. I'm like, yeah, I could see it. And yeah, like Kelnick hasn't been good this year, but. Yeah. And just throw reps at those guys. Like Kelnick should yeah. just have all the reps to see and watch his progress. But, and there's going to be some busts, whether it's Tremel or. You know, who who knows? Just some of that group. Kyle yeah, Lewis looks awesome, off. but he's been hurt a lot and has had a bunch of knee issues. Like, there are just reasons there's there's attrition that has nothing to do with anyone being wrong about players' talent. Just It just tends to happen. So I, I think that they should be in depth accumulation mode to try to combat that. Now, the Angels, I think, are doing exactly what they should do, which is they brought Reed Detmers up. They're giving Adele and Brandon Marsh chances to yeah. just keep playing at the major league level. They're trying to make every Otani start an event, and they should be because it's really fun. I think they're handling this kind of lost season quite well. They're not rushing Trout back. Rendon is out for the season, which makes sense. But I think this is a pretty solid way to play things for them. There's really no need for them to try to make the playoffs this year. It's over. And so getting a bunch of, like I think, very good prospects reps is an intelligent way to handle the rest of the season for them. No notes. I think what they're doing is great. Yeah, they have a lot of guys coming off of the payroll at the end of the year. I wonder what kind of offers they had for Jose Iglesias and Raysel Iglesias. You know, everyone just sort of needs a Juan Ligaris or whatever. That's fair. I, I don't think they necessarily handled the trade deadline all that well. Yeah. But I do think that what they're doing with the rest of the season makes sense. I, sure. Maybe they thought they were uh, still contending at the deadline. It doesn't seem likely. Yeah, but it's definitely, let's watch Brandon Marsh now. And remember that Marsh has had shoulder stuff. And like his dad, who he was close to, passed. So, I, you know, I'm not expecting a ton from Brandon Marsh. Like, it's been a rough year for him. It's been a rough couple of years for him just because he dealt with 2020 the same as any of us did. But yeah, like, let's see Joe Adele had 20 bombs in the minors before they called him up. 
He looked really rough in 2020, but is very talented and he's going to strike out a lot, but let's see. There's just so much power. So those are the two big ones. And they're still, they're still just unexciting. Put them on. You got an MLB TV, like cut these guys on because Otani is going to take in that bat every couple innings and Adele and Marsh are going to too. Yeah. And David Fletcher does awesome stuff. And Jose Iglesias is good for a handful of slick defensive plays every night. Like they're still a hell of a team to watch. Yeah, I watched them yesterday for basically that reason. I mean, and they were playing the Blue Jays, who were fun. And Iglesias made some just real gems. He is one of the players who I think is most fun to watch relative to how yeah. great he is. Like, he's good, but he's he's just a really good highlight defender. Jack Mayfield's a good story. So, yeah, they're they're cool. Yeah, I guess lastly, we got the Cardinals. Yeah, what do you think about this? I mean, I'm not thrilled with this Cardinals team, but this season was... Just so undermined by pitching injuries. The NL Central is not a good division. And if the Cardinals had, had pitching health for the year, I think it would be a lot closer between them and the Brewers and the Reds. And none of these teams are that great. So I think the Cardinals need to figure out which of their young pitchers they can trust. And I think they need to give Edmundo Sosa more chances to supplant someone, whether it's Tommy Edmond or Paul DeYoung. Probably Edmond. I mean, <laughs> Edmond has been trying batting righty against right-handed pitchers, even though he's a switch hitter, because he's, yeah. he's just so bad lefty. And that's the big side of the platoon. That's that's not good. Yeah, it's been interesting to watch like Kisner stall and sputter and really struggle to do some of the finer catching stuff, even though his tutor is the king of those things, you know? So some of this has been frustrating. And like to look at the bullpen coming into the year and think, you know, this is a this is a contending bullpen with Reyes and Gallegos and Cabrera and Helsley like yeah, they have those, big arms those guys yeah can throw down with it looks like the Rays bullpen <laughs> the, the top four looks great yeah and again they just had they've had a bunch of injuries to guys in the rotation some of it's not surprising like but Carlos Martinez if you had told me it's a thumb surgery and not like an oblique or something I would have been like that's that seems wrong but yeah he him being hurt feels like a thing that we could have predicted yeah, Flaherty missing a bunch of time is not great. Michaelis never pitching is not great. I do think that they, after some just extended just disasters in the bullpen, I like Andrew Miller looks a lot better since he returned from injury. Luis Garcia, really interesting actually. Which which one is that? This is the uh, the reliever, the former hairdresser. He's a former hairdresser. He, he's a uh, he's on the Phillies for a while, so probably yes. that's who you're talking about. Yeah, he's like you know. <laughs> He's a lot more interesting than I expected. I thought he was just kind of a complete back of the rotation guy. He throws 98. It doesn't look unsustainable. Really heavy, like, slider dude, too, and the slider looks good. I think the the plan of figuring out which bullpen arms work is fine. I think the plan of having John Lester pitch is not so much. The the Tommy Edmund let's figure out if you're a switch hitter thing or not is a vital piece of what they have going on. I don't know, like... Lars Newtbar was a guy at one point, like early in his time at USC, and then he sort of fell off, but here he is on a big league roster, so he's a priority eval for me. I think they're making a huge mistake having him in the majors. Like, well, I don't know what the the alternative is. Oh, you're just, uh, yeah, I guess it's Lane Thomas and he's gone. Right, like Scott Hurst, Austin Dean, Justin Williams, and Lars Newtbar are yep. all what I would consider to be like very fringy 40-man guys, let alone active roster type dudes. Okay, so wouldn't you much rather have Austin Dean up and not playing that often and have Newtbar playing every day in AAA? I, probably, yeah, considering that they're essentially playing the same role 
and Dean has a little bit more defensive versatility historically, although I don't I couldn't tell you what positions he had all played this year. I just know that over the course of his career he's played a bunch of spots. But also, you know, he's twenty eight and Newt Bar's twenty four. Sure, yeah. And Dean's one of those dudes where it's like, do you want to whiff on a Luke Voigt type guy again, or do you want to give someone who's hit consistently in the minors like some some big league run to see what he can do? Yeah. Thirty whatever, forty eight plate appearances or whatever he's had. I guess I would just argue that they're not actually giving Newt Bar that much big league run. And it's actually kind of hard to. Their their outfield is young, and there's no one obvious who you should uh, who you should bench for him. Like giving Dylan Carlson run makes sense too. Yeah, and and you're not gonna bench Bader or O'Neill, I don't think. They have this kind of weird like they have good outfielders, or at least too good to just be completely dropping them to give some you know some maybe chances to a guy who's had 136 plate appearances at AAA. Like just let him hit every day in AAA and see how he does. In my opinion. The young reinforcements for next year are like Luke and Baker's hit well, so he probably gets added. And then nobody else just looking through the roster resource page is like... Yeah, they have an issue with the way they've built their team and the way their talent is allocated. The places where you can improve are kind of middle infield. Like second and short are the easiest places to improve. And then I don't know what they're doing with catcher. One thing that they should do is have meetings until they figure out if they're going to bring Molina back. How about Delvin Perez? Delvin Perez was passed over in last year's Rule 5. Well, he has to be on the 40 this year, right? He's Well, yeah, I mean, he was eligible last year. But he's, he's just, like, really showed up. He's okay. Yeah, more than in years past. He's got he's run a 90-95 adjusted runs created plus each of the last couple of full seasons he's played in. For a guy who can play a viable defensive shortstop, like, that's that's not bad. So maybe he is a 40-man ad, although he's that's just sort of what Edmundo Sosa projects to be, too. So That's fair. There's already somebody on there who can do that type of thing. But yeah, like Brendan Donovan's had a good year too. You like to think like, okay, Nolan Gorman's come in and he's yeah. some sort of corner role player who they've tried to moustakis shoehorn at second base. And I don't really know how that's gone, actually. Not in intimate, like I've watched this guy take a bunch of grounders at second base way anyway. I watch occasional highlight packages of a second base defense. It's, it's better. Okay. I would not say that it is major league playable yet. But I, I think there is still hope that it is, if that makes sense. I think you have to continue to try it. That makes sense to continue to try it. If they could somehow figure out another place to play Newt Bar, I'd be more interested in seeing up in the majors. It doesn't really seem like they can. And it doesn't really seem like they're going to um, kind of stealth IL anyone to get them rest. So, I don't know. It kind of seems like if they really want to do something for next year, they should figure out the middle infield situation. Like, DeYoung and Edmund is just not that compelling either of them are fine but having both of them is that's just you really want to add a little bit more than that all right let's uh take a peek at the standings real quick let's just sort of shoot from the hip and guess what the playoff picture will be when all is said and done at this at this snapshot in time so in the nl Phillies, Braves, and Mets are separated by two games. Phillies have been hot lately. Zach Wheeler, Aaron Nola, Bryce Harper hitting well. I still don't think that the pitching to actually contend is here, but they might They might win the division because the Mets are struggling. Yeah. DeGrom's not healthy. The Braves don't have Acuna, Soroka. Like, those two teams have really been troubled by injuries to their best players. So I guess I'd say that the Phillies, the way things look right now, they're the favorites in that division, but I don't necessarily consider them actual title contenders. How do you feel about the NL East? Yeah, Phillies have a really easy schedule too. 
really easy schedule. That counts for a lot uh, this late. In, like, it's hard for it to matter that much this like with this much time left to go, but it's really easy. Like, if you look at our projected strength of schedule, they're projected to play a 476 and the Mets a 506. That's a 30 points of winning percentage difference is really big. That that makes you play up quite a lot. They play the D-backs twice. They play. They have seven left against the D-backs, which really helps a lot. And then in September, they're playing, you know, the Rockies, the Cubs, the Orioles, the Pirates, the Marlins. They really got the, the harder games out of the way earlier in the season. And I kind of think you're going to have this feeling where you're like, oh, the Phillies aren't that good. They don't really have that good pitching, but... <laughs> But you keep seeing them, you know, winning 5-4 or 6-5 against the Orioles. And you're like, yeah, I guess that's the Orioles suck. So I could see them winning this. And I think they'll pull it out. So, yeah, the playoff odds right now have them as 51% chance to win the division. The Braves at 33 and the Mets at just shy of 17%. I guess if I were just going to augment it based on personal bias, like the Braves, I like the way they sort of patched some of their outfield holes at the deadline. And I thought that they gave themselves a puncher's chance to to sneak up on the fills here. NL Central, the Brewers are seven games up on the Reds. Yeah. They're 94% shot to win the division. Yeah, I I feel good. Yep. NL West, Dodgers, Giants. The Giants are currently ahead of them in the standings, but the Dodgers are 59% to win the division based on our playoff odds, whereas the Giants are only at 37%. The Padres are way, way back there at 3.5%, seven games back of the Giants right now. How do you think that that shakes out? And then I guess the wild card mixes in there too. Yeah. I mean, I just think whichever two don't win, we'll get the wild card. I would shade our odds a lot closer to 50-50 than we have it. The Dodgers are just running out of time. And it's only four games still, though. It's only four games. And I know that our math, you know, does take that into account. It's not just like math does know that it's August 11th as we record this. Let's see how many times they play each other the rest of the year. That's the one thing that would make me tilt it a little bit more in the Dodgers' favor. Yastrzemski back from injury. Chris Bryant in tow now. They play each other three more games. So not... Eh, that's not... You can't really make as big of a dent. That's less than I would have guessed. I would have said that they played between six and seven times. They had a, a long string in, what is it, July, where it just felt like they were playing each other every day. I think they had seven out of their... Seven out of ten games were against each other. And that was just a, a big chunk of the season series this year. I would call it a coin flip at this point. If I told you right now that the Reds caught the Padres for wild card spot number two, what would you guess the reasons for that would be? Tatis goes back on the IL and one pitching injury too. Yeah, I think that's the the pitching injury thing is definitely the first thing that came to my mind when I posited the question. It's like, oh, really? You know, it's Darvish, Snell, Musgrove, Weathers, and then like I like Reese Kinnear. He was I had him stuffed pretty good on the preseason prospect list, but you are kind of hanging on by a thread when your next best guys up are like. James Norwood and Nabil Krismat and Sean Anderson, like you're playing with fire there. Reggie Lawson's still on the 40-man. Guy does not look like he he's on the fringe of that roster right now, just based on my rehab look at him. So yeah, I do think that the Padres pitching depth, they can't really afford any more body blows here. I think that they're, yeah. they're teetering. That does make their situation kind of scary. I think the Reds do have a chance to, to catch them. In the American League, the AL East, Rays, Red Sox, Yankees, and Blue Jays, it's Rays and then five games. They're ahead of Boston by five games. And then the Yankees and Jays are seven, seven and a half back. Uh, do you have any offhand opinions of that division? I think the Rays are probably just going to hang on. The The Red Sox needed to kind of keep health and they never see, they were never quite this good. And their main, like, use, the main thing they had going for them was that they were ahead. 
And now that they're not, and now that they're, I mean, if Chris Sale comes back and it's just incredible, that'll change my view a little bit. But I don't think he's going to be stretched out enough, and I don't think he's going to make enough of a difference down the stretch. So I guess that leaves me saying Rays win the division, and then it's just really amazing. They're, they're so much better than I think they'll be every year. Yeah, they're great at being greater than the sum of their parts. You know, Boston is in that situation too where you look at the 40-man you're like, oh, they can't really afford any more pitching injuries. But Tanner Houck's been very good. I saw Connor Siebold a couple weeks ago. He would be fine if you plugged him into the rotation and he had to take a turn or two, in my opinion. And with Sale coming back, like they do kind of have some reinforcements just sort of sitting and waiting around all of a sudden. The Yankee situation is so weird because of all the COVID stuff. I don't know. They're really talented. It wouldn't surprise me if they, given the situation, weren't anywhere close to the playoffs in six weeks. And also, it wouldn't surprise me if they were suddenly leading the division. Yeah, I think both wild cards are playing in this division. And I think the teams most likely to miss out on it are actually the Yankees and Red Sox. There's nothing really to talk about in the AL Central. Yeah, Red Sox are good. And yeah, I don't think the A's are going to get the wild card. I know they have it right now. I know they have a wild card too, but... It's just, I'm not convinced. I think the Astros, I mean, they're only two games up in the division because the Astros have kind of been scuffling. But I, I think the Astros are going to pull away with it. And that I think the A's are, I just don't think they quite have enough to uh, to get the wild card. This is another team that I'm often a little too low on because they, they get a lot more out of their starters than I think they will every year. That's basically where I've, I've been wrong on them. But this, I'm just not seeing it. I'm rooting for them. I'm the only person at the site who picked them to win the division before the year. So I want them to do it. Had you told me when I did that that Matt Chapman was not going to bounce back and Jesus Lazardo was going to struggle, I'd be like, oh, well, then I'm wrong. They're two games back, but are like only 15% based on the playoff odds to win the division. The hole here, when you're just taking a gander at the depth chart, seems to be the bullpen. Like Bassett's good. Sean Manaya has resurged. Frankie Montas has looked good. Cole Irvin has exceeded my expectations. AJ Puck's throwing harder all of a sudden. So maybe there is suddenly a legit elite bullpen weapon here all of a sudden. I just think that like Diekman and Andrew Chafin are as good as any late game lefty duo. And that Yusmero Petit and Sergio Romo just always show up and execute and are fine. And even though their farm system's not good, they did really well at the deadline. Yeah, Marte is great. He's a good player. And Josh Harrison and Jan Gomes crush lefties. I wish that their starting shortstop were better than Elvis Andrews has been. I was hopeful coming into the year based on the incentives in his deal that he would be one of those guys where, wow, like Elvis Andrews has dropped 15 pounds and his sprint speed is has accelerated and like he just is having, he's going to have this little career renaissance and he has not. Yeah. They could really use Pinder being back too. Yeah, he's he's the guy who Josh Harrison is basically like they're replacing, it seems. The, the role that Pinder would have played, ideally, a dude who can move all around the diamond at some of the lesser positions and thump lefties, and that's just what they got in Harrison. So, so yeah, I'm not sure that it would be nice if Pinder came back because I do think that he is just an offensive upgrade to Andrews a lot of the time and would share a consistent playing time with him, even though he's not as good defender. Yeah, and like, you know, Seth Brown is getting a, a good amount of run. I don't think that's great. But yeah, I do wonder, like, could this team have gotten Freddie Galvis? Could they have gotten Jose Iglesias? Right. But again, like, for, for the system that they have, for them to have added the pieces that they did at the deadline, it's like, oh, that's they did really well. Yeah, I think they'll end up on the outside looking in, but I'm willing to be proven wrong there. 
it's just going to be about like Toronto are the arms in the bullpen for them to shut the door in some of these close games against divisional foes late versus like the A's. It's basically the same thing. Like the A's and the Blue Jays are pretty similar in a lot of ways, except the Blue Jays have like the sexy young players and the A's just find a way to like patch it together with Mark Canna and Josh Harrison. <laughs> but yeah, losing Loriano is going to hurt too. So I hadn't thought about that until just now when I saw his name on the suspended list. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, I'm sure that Ben and I won't be held accountable for anything we just said because it'll just be washed away by the tidal wave of content. Well, I'm sure we're just going to be perfectly right. Thanks for listening to another Fangraphs Audio. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for producing. I'm Eric Longenhagen for Ben Clemens. Talk to you next week. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Thank you to Ryan Fitzgerald for joining us. If you would like to stay apprised on all the cool things we have going on over at the website, and boy, let me tell you, you would, then make sure to sign up for the Fangraphs newsletter, free in your inbox every weekday. We hope you enjoy the show, and we'll talk to you next week.